Hello, my friends. Welcome back to another episode of the podcast. I'm very, very happy to have you over. And I feel a little stupid, actually, because I've been um, hearing a lot of people and a lot of conversations around me, and I've been a part of some of them, uh, where people are talking about this chat GPT. Is that, is that right? I don't know. I didn't even know. The problem is, a lot of the times I hear it, and it's actually not what it is, because I thought it's chat GBD, GTP, GPT. Um, and frankly, yeah, I know what it does. Um, and there are a lot of conversations about how it's... Um, being banned on university campuses because of people using it um, and how people are going to kind of use AI to kind of fudge papers and thing. But um, frankly, when I've read a couple of articles or, twe or, or tweets about how you can actually use it to kind of aid you in um, whether it's essay writing, whether it's writing descriptions, whether it's writing um, summaries or even in some cases screenplays or books or whatever it may be um it's it states it as being as simple as ask it a question and it'll kind of look within its huge archives and give you an answer that it thinks uh is suitable to your question but i was just just literally before recording this i was just like okay what will i ask it right maybe i can ask it to write a description for this episode and i, I realized um, I was a little stumped. I didn't know how to go about it. So I felt a little silly that um, I might not be able to use this AI thing. But um, I haven't tried it. Have you tried it? I, 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 I heard it's quite fantastic. In fact, I was talking to a friend on, on the phone the other day and he was like, wait a second, I'm going to ask ChatGPT to write me a job description. And he fed in some, um, I think, some relevant pointers about the role about the nature of the work or whatever it may be maybe a line or two and then he read out the the thing it gave and it was quite fucking fantastic like everything from the title to the description to the responsibilities to um uh, yeah pretty much what you would spend a day on depending on how kind of involved you are in that particular task and how important it is uh, but i think that's what is interesting right because um uh, we get so caught up. See, unless, of course, you're an author who um, takes pride in the words and also the construct um, of stories with, with, with the right amount of um, their own style, with the amount of um, kind of time they put into the choice of words, the... The, the grammar and stuff so, like you know like P.G. Woodhouse who I love listening to I think he has a very unique style and so does a lot of I mean every author aspires to have their own unique style of storytelling and that comes with a lot of the choice of words the way those words are put together and if that's kind of your key uh, offering besides of course the idea and the story um, then of course you need to really sort of spend time on that craft and that's the same for a comedian or that's the same for a dialogue kind of writer or um, someone whose entire flair for the language is what makes them special and what sets them apart, right? Um, even say music, lyric writers, etc. But um, I remember being in college and I remember the importance of 
the research papers or the essays. And that, I don't know if it's that important because unless, of course, you're in creative writing, uh, I think for science papers uh, or even for social science papers, how important is it to write like good um creative sentences let's put it that way um the idea is your findings and your opinion or more importantly your kind of stand on what you're uh trying to put um in 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 your in your paper and and in that case i think this is this is superb right like why would you waste time um on the tedious aspect of writing when this can do the writing for you but you can spend more time 90% of the time on actually thinking about the problem or the um, solution to the problem or the idea behind um, uh, what what interests you or um, I mean what I what I think I'm getting at is it's it's something that can be really used if uh, we kind of look at it the right way uh, and not just as a you know a trick that you can kind of think but um, I'm sure a lot of people have already cracked it in the, the way that they want to. But I feel a lot of the writing um, tasks that we are sort of expected to do and that we've kind of got used to uh, considering as work is pretty mundane. It's pretty dull. It's pretty unnecessary. Um, like, for instance, even if you're like, I remember being in, 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 in corporate and 90% of the work was shit, man. Like, minutes of the meeting or some other junk like that where you have to write emails and sort of copy everyone on it or you have to write these uh, technical papers. And and trust me, the technical papers I used to review were so badly written, like the grammar, the, the, the English they used, the kind of sentences were just junk. And I feel when that's not your strength or that's not even your responsibility and the responsibility of your role in that uh, blue paper, whatever white paper it is, is, is the, the engineering behind it or the code or the, the, the design language. And that's something that's your strength. So for those situations where you don't uh, necessarily have the skills or it's not even something that is expected of you, because if you look in companies now, they say these things, right? Soft skills. And most people, let's be honest, don't have fucking soft skills at all. Like the way they, when they speak, the way they write, the way they communicate, while they say, yeah, you know, that's one of my core strengths and that's how I, my strategy and all these kind of fancy fucking resume language. I really don't think any of them uh, give it importance. I mean, the main idea is to cover their asses, copy their bosses uh, and make sure that they are appeared, uh, they appear to be doing work. But, um, I really think that in, in situations like that or even situations where you have to do like, you know, um, things which aren't sort of the most, um, where, where, where the writing skill or the language or the, as I already mentioned, fucking, I don't know, I'm repeating myself, but where the, where, where the thing kind of represents who you are when the writing or the, the, the style of writing or the choice of words really matter to you i think in other in other situations fucking go ahead use chat gpt because it it does a really good job i feel of just standardizing stuff that is mediocre at the present moment right i think it'll um people who are really keen people who are really talented people who are really creative people who are really um uh, keen on bringing out the, the, their, their style to the forefront will continue to do that and they won't use things like chat gpt because they feel it does an injustice to their skill or their their um, th th their way of presenting what they want to say. But 
for every other situation where writing is just more to fill up um is is more of a task that just um or rather just a medium to communicate something bigger and i know writing is always the case i mean with anything right like see um with talking as well with speaking and um w- w- with the art forms with music with stand up with um uh poetry see like that kind of place it's as much as the idea and the words um it's as much the premise and the words and it's how it's said etc but uh, for for instance researchers or for instance uh you have people who are i would i would say even bloggers would probably fall into the writers writers category uh storytelling category but for everyone else uh, unless you have this 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 scientist who's really proud of her way of writing um and many times it's just read by other scientists and they don't care about whether it's um a beautifully constructed sentence or whether it's a deeper more profound way of understanding the thing it's more fact based you present your findings and you present your um your thesis or your hypothesis and for those situations and even in places um where it's it's even worse when the communication is kind of so uh filled with abbreviations and with all these short shortened things in emojis i think this particular tool i think will really do a good job in raising the standard of communication and uh, reducing the time spent on that communication because you just kind of say what's the best way i can write an email to my boss um introducing this uh idea i have for a project or this idea i have for expanding the team or these kind of very standardized corporate kind of situations and requirements which can be done and then you can get to the real good shit if you're really keen on doing good shit because i feel a lot of people in corporate uh the world uh, over i think not just in it or in anything but across the board again not everyone but a lot of people i think who hide behind the the shit work and i think a few people as i told you last time as well do all the good work and the 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 bigger number take take credit for that um and i feel this can kind of really uh, avoid that and i think give um importance to really what needs to be done and uh, you don't waste hours on kind of sharing minutes of the meeting or you kind of don't kind of hide behind numbers and you don't hide behind um your your kind of foosball cigarette breaks and these long chains of emails and kind of all these things you do on word to kind of just make one change and kind of appear like you've done a lot of work so i think that may be good but also yeah i think for students fucking go ahead man what's the problem like i think um as long as the idea is original i think the the way you, you write it of course if um i'm not a professor i'm not a, I'm not an academic academic academician i don't know what the fucking word is i think it's uh, go ahead i feel it's going to um change the way we Uh, prioritize and give importance to what is actually important and i think that's good so yeah hats off to the open ai the folks at open ai and uh, fuck it it's a step and it's a step in the right direction i think that's good and that's my two cents and all of that was said by me not by chat gpt clearly you can tell mm-hmm. um anyway let me uh, introduce my guest on today's episode because she is uh someone i had a really um interesting conversation with and it was a topic that kind of uh has to be approached a little delicately because all of us at some point or at repeating points in our life we think about this topic and that's the 
idea of death and losing someone uh, dear to us. And we think of our own mortality and many of us are scared of dying. And uh, I think the whole uh, of humanity as a collective is driven by the fear of dying. And a lot of people um, make an effort to not think about it. And in the process, they kind of say, I'm living, but it's always on the back of their mind. But if you look at everything from spiritual texts where they talk about the idea of the only thing being guaranteed is death and how you must, once you make peace with it, uh, that's when you actually sort of realize that life in its truest self is something to live for now and not worry about what might happen down the line. So um, Kelly Lynn, that's my guest today, um, had a quite, a quite quite a shattering episode in her life about 10, I think maybe 12 years back. And um, in this episode, I talked to her about what it was like losing um, her husband in like literally not even overnight like it, it's I, you listen to it and you you'll hear it from her and just the idea of how do you deal with death with loss with the with grief and in general how do we as a society look at dying and the process of I wouldn't say coping, but many times we emphasize on the rituals after someone passes on. But what is it really like? And how are we expected to behave versus what do we really need to do? And the idea of honoring a person's memory and how important that is. And to respect your feelings for that person, for the for, for, for the, the, the kind of relationship within yourself and that person. And I think more importantly, I mean, why, why do we kind of tell people to move on and tell people that, you know, things will be okay? And is there a way in which you can do it differently? And there's a way in which you can celebrate this, this, this idea of a person and and continue to have them in your life, but move on with relationships that might come along. So uh, Kelly's written a book, um, uh, kind of documenting her story, her experiences, her recovery, her, her, her journey of grief, her journey of helping and connecting with other people who've experienced similar situations in their life. And I think it's, I found it really um, how do I put it? I think I'm really profound. I think it was an eye opener in many ways. Uh, very touching. And I think it's something that we all need to kind of think about without panicking and having this mortal fear of our existence. And kind of the moment we think about it, try to avoid it and try to avoid thinking about it. And uh, I'm really happy that Kelly took the time to talk to me about her story, about her ex-husband, about her present husband and how that um, development took place in her life. And yeah, I'm sure a lot of you listening, um, I'm sure all of us have lost someone and I'm sure a lot of you listening um, might be able to make sense of a loss that you experienced by listening to what Kelly has to say. 
And of course, you can check out her talk uh, on TEDx, uh, which again is about loss and um, losing somebody you love and her book, which is My Husband Is Not A Rainbow. You can check that out as well. And yeah, before I continue rambling on, let's get into the conversation with Kelly Lynn. And um, as always, I appreciate you tuning into this podcast every week and listening. Till next episode, goodbye, God bless, and take care of yourselves. Cheers. Kelly Lynn, welcome to the podcast and thank you so much for joining me. You are very welcome. I just woke up. <laughs> well, I hope I have, uh, well, I hope I don't bore you to sleep. <laughs> Back to sleep. <laughs> well, it's nice to have a uh, fellow comedian and uh, yeah. I, would, I would like to say fellow author, but I'm not there yet because I just, I, I try to write, but I just can't. <laughs> and I've made peace with that. <laughs> <laughs> But, it's difficult. Uh, it took me almost five years to write my book. It takes a long. It takes a long time to sort of piece it all together. It's not easy. And, and I want to ask you that, right? Because uh, as a comedian, you kind of also have the process of writing and then translating the the written word into spoken word. Um, and of course, you have the elements of performance and timing, etc. And you have the element of a live crowd. Uh, when you um, are telling a story, of course. Um, the story being one aspect, but also the telling off, which is so important. How um, how do you hold that thought? Because in, in comedy, sometimes um, what I feel is that that thought knits the entire piece together, whether it's a one-hour show or a 20-minute show. It's this underlying feeling that drives you through the material. Um, and how do you retain that sense while writing a book? Because it took you five years and it wasn't every day for five years I'm sure you had moments where you had to reflect and right. you had to take a break so how do you hold that for lack of a better word that feeling through the book or through the piece yeah that's a really good question because it is not easy is the is the short answer the longer <laughs> answer is that you know people write differently and some people I think write when they write whether it's comedy or a book or an article or anything I think they can sit down and like say oh from at five o'clock today I'm going to write and I'm going to be creative I uh, cannot do that. I'm not, not that person. I can't yeah. give myself a time and say I'm going to write. I have to write when I feel creative. And sometimes that's at three in the morning. And sometimes that's I me waking up in the middle of the night and going, oh, I have a thought. And then I write it down. Mm. And then I'm furiously typing at my computer for the next two hours. And it was sort of pieced together that way, just in bits and pieces of when I feel it. And so mm. when I feel it, you know, that that mood, you know what I'm talking about as a, as a comic yourself, um, that mood that you get where you just feel something in there that needs to come out. Yeah. And anytime that would happen, I would just sit down and start furiously writing. And if I was out or if I was at work or something, I had a notebook with me or a little, I would just record it in my phone and I would just say it into the phone. And then yeah. later I would come home and write it. Um so it, it was a lot of that for right. a few years. You know, that that note taking or at least just recording that one thought or putting it in your notes, it's great. But I remember once, um, so I, I, I 
used to just say, you know, I'll wake up in the morning and remember it. And I more often than not didn't remember it. Right. But right. I remember once it was a few drinks down and I woke up with this idea and I said, I just put this point down. It sounds really funny. So I just uh, put, opened my phone, put dictate. And next morning I see this note, which goes wet dreams and horse riding. I'm like, what were you thinking? <laughs> I had absolutely... You're like, what does that mean? <laughs> yeah. So now I spent more time trying to figure out if I have some mental health issues because clearly right. if you have horses in your wet dreams. <laughs> so, yeah, and then yeah. you spend 20 minutes going, what does that even mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I kind of uh, spend a little bit more time awake saying, okay, put a few more points to not startle yeah. the sober Sandeep. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. <laughs> but uh god it's yeah <laughs> so it's kind of like when you put something in a certain place so you won't forget where it is and then you forget where it is <laughs> yeah yeah or yeah it's it's like you've heard stories right people looking for their uh back in the day when you had landlines you had the cordless phone or the remote and suddenly it's in the fridge and people are like what was it doing there right, right. but uh yeah it happens i think it's it's, it's a strange um idea you know and that the, i was telling you before we started recording i've been reading this book and people who listen to this podcast will probably be wondering why i've taken so long to finish it but it's one of those books which each passage kind of makes you think for quite a few days and this morning uh i was reading the book by osho and it's called take it easy it's more of a lecture and, uh, and, and an interpretation of these uh zen passages and that he was talking about the masculine and the feminine and how the masculine is more insanity and that's why the feminine feminine which brings more sanity and how they both complement each other and that's something the reason i introduced that is because as as an artist in some sense we need to mesh both right because if we're outlandishly um uh insane with our ideas but we can't kind of rein them in with the context of managing it well it doesn't because you hear of some of the greatest comedians who are unknown because they just can't manage themselves they can't they can't yeah. book themselves shows they they can't even sort of work in the realm of the entertainment business and some people who are just mediocre but they're so good uh when it comes to the organization the business side of things so i found that very interesting how we all have each of that within us but um for you working in 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 this space because um i i want to go back to that time in your life which of course is you know i i'm sorry for your loss and Thank it's you. been an it, i i don't want to put words which you know kind of um to suppose what you went through but can you talk me through um you know the book you wrote about and why and what led you uh, what what experiences in your life led you to 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 that point sure sure so i um i was a comedian and an actor and had like the basic you know struggling actor lifestyle going on in new york city mm-hmm. um back in the late 90s so quite a mm-hmm. long time ago uh-huh. and i was living that life and i was a uh, teaching at Adelphi University in New York. And mm-hmm. I was teaching uh, as a professor for acting and uh, stand-up comedy courses and uh, writing courses and different things like that. So I was kind of living that life. And while I was there, I met this man, um, you know, I was dating and I met a man online, which was not uh, what people did back then. So it was yeah. not like a dating site. Um, it was just a a music chat room is what it was. And so you'd go into this chat room and you would type um, song lyrics and 1980s song lyrics. And then you'd have to identify, oh, that's, you know, this song by Men Without Hats or whatever. Right, right. And, <laughs> and you'd guess the song lyrics. So one night I went in there in New York and there was this guy in there from Florida 
Mm-hmm. And we were the only two people in there. And, and usually those 40 or 50 people in there playing this game. And, you know, we were like, is it something we said? What's happening? Why are we the only two in here? Yeah. And we ended up having a five-hour conversation. That five-hour conversation turned into three years of us talking almost every night online or on the phone mm. before we met in person. Mm. And then we met in person. And then we fell in love. And he moved to New York to be with me and start a life with me. And we were married four and a half years and we were very happy and two struggling people. And um, he was a paramedic. So he was not in the, in the arts, but he loved being a part of that world with me. And, you know, he'd come over and tell a joke with me and be like, can you put that in your act? Can you put that in your act? That's funny, right? (laughs) So he was, he was a really funny person and just a kind hearted person, just an amazing kind-hearted person. Um, Very healthy as far as we knew. And one ordinary Wednesday, uh, he got up and went to his volunteer job. He was off work that day. So he was not on the ambulance. And he got up to go to his uh, volunteer job. He did a lot of work with uh, rescue uh, cats and dogs. He loved Mm. animals. And they found him collapsed on the floor about an hour later after he got there. And he had a massive heart attack. And he died pretty instantly. They rushed him to the hospital, but it was, you know, too late. Mm. And he was 46 years old. I was 39. And Mm. so I became widowed at 39 very, very suddenly. And I was not prepared. I I was, I mean, to say I was shocked was the understatement of life. You know, I was expecting to spend my entire life with this person and grow old together and all of that all of those things you expect when you marry someone yeah, yeah. and hope. And uh, my entire world changed. And so one of the things that happened was I took my comedy and my writing, which I had already done my whole life. Um, and I used that to kind of get through uh, the most difficult time in my life, you know, and I started writing about it and I started getting on stage and talking about it and, and, making jokes about, you know, all the absurd things that happen to you when your spouse dies. And I found a community. I found a tribe of other widowed people who were going through the same thing and who were who had also lost a spouse or a partner, you know, in their 30s, in their 20s, in their 40s, you know. Yeah. Um, and it really, really got me through the worst time of my life to have that community, A, and to be creative and use my creativity to talk about it and to be honest about it, about how hard it is, because nobody tells you how brutally hard it is to get through something like that and how long the grief really does last. And it doesn't really ever go away. It kind of sh- uh, shifts and changes over the years. And it's way better now. It's been 11 years now, mm. but it's always a part of my life. Um, and so one of the things I did is I wrote a book um called my husband is not a rainbow and that's basically a book about all of that you know that whole i call it a tsunami not a journey i hate the word journey to me Mm. journey is like a mediocre 80 span and (laughs) (laughs) and not something that describes grief so i call it the the grief tsunami you know because it's more like that to me it just comes crashing into your life uninvited and breaks all the windows and puts all of your emotions and feelings on the floor and you've got to clean it up for the next decade. 
And you've got to figure that out. You know, this idea that I think a lot of us are conditioned, especially now with the post-pandemic um, uh, era, if you want to call it, we're conditioned to kind of look at our own mortality, right? Because a lot of people we knew um, lost their lives and a lot of them, yes, were susceptible, but a lot of them were also healthy. And now you hear of young people suddenly getting heart attacks. And But of course, when it happened for you, you didn't live in a time of a pandemic. Um, so there's a difference, right? When it when you think of it, you're anticipating it and nothing happens. But then when you're not thinking about it and you're planning for this long life with the person you love and suddenly it just takes you out of the left, just unexpected and such a shattering loss. Um, I get the idea, right, that you used comedy or someone would use words or lyrics or music and these are proven to be uh, some kind of balm to at least not bottle up those feelings and I've uh, spoken to a couple of people, like a friend who lost his mother to cancer, and he said the same thing. He said, I just went and spoke about it on stage. It was raw. It was hard. But not so much a but, but there is a but, clearly, a second one. Uh, I, I don't know why I said but, but. It's uh, a but, but. A but, but, yeah. What, what is that? I mean, did you ever feel you're doing injustice to him while talking about it? Because um, I don't come from a place of uh, criticism. I come from a place of when you're talking about something so painful, do yeah. you feel that you can't, um, or let me phrase it this way, do you feel the, the joke itself limits the emotion behind what you're trying to say because you have to get the laugh or you have to get, and, and sadly today we live in a victim glorifying thing where people will clap because you're the victim that you went through this right. loss. So how much uh, were you bound by the, by the medium itself? So that's a great question. You ask good questions. <laughs> You're <laughs> good you. at this. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I, I hope so. Because no, for what real. Noticed, because and what I noticed usually people ask, ask such boring questions. <laughs> <laughs> but my wife's like, can you uh, let them finish answering the question? I end up asking the next one. <laughs> so I appreciate you're, the compliment. You're like me. <laughs> yeah, you get too many thoughts in your head at once and you just want to get them all out. Like, yeah, yeah, but I've gotten a question. little better since episode one. I'm listening a little bit more. So. <laughs> <laughs> so it is a very good question. And um, so the answer is that when I do this comedy, I don't do it everywhere for that reason. I do mm. it in specific places and situations where most of the time the audience is also widowed or they are also going through a loss or, you know, like I wouldn't go into a comedy club in New York city and talk about my dead husband for 20 minutes because mm. it doesn't make sense. Those people are there to have a few drinks, have a good time. They don't want to hear about how my husband died. They don't want to feel bad for me. They don't want that. And I've found that by trying it a few times in those places and mm. it just didn't go well. I felt like they were feeling bad for me mm. instead of laughing. Um, and so they were just kind of staring at me and drinking their beer and they were like, um, yeah, let's, I think we're going to leave early. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. this woman's up here talking about her dead husband and this is really awkward. But when I do the comedy in front of other widowed people, the comedy is not about how my husband died. That's not funny. What's funny is what happens afterwards. All yeah. the comments people make to you when you lose 
somebody, you know, he's in a better place. It's God's plan. Like all that stuff is what I make fun of. Yeah. And then all of the red tape issues that you have to go through when you lose a spouse, um, you know, calling uh, phone companies and, and changing your phone plan and having them tell you that, you know, they need to speak to your husband while well, he's dead. You can't talk to him. I'm sorry. You know, things like that are what where the comedy comes from. So I never, ever felt like I was uh, compromising myself to get the laugh because the laughs were so genuine in those audiences. And those are my people. And that's where I do that comedy. When I go into a comedy club, I do what I call my normal comedy, my, you know, observational humor, everyday humor, that type of stuff. I just do more of the other stuff because it's more meaningful to me now in my life after loss. I do a lot of the comedy where I'm talking to other people going through loss or people who have been through trauma, people who have been through grief. So it's kind of like a comedic presentation more than a stand-up comedy act. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. You know, so you you speak about this thing of post-death, a lot of the red tape stuff, right? I remember listening to a bit by Doug Stanhope, which was so brilliantly put together about how, you know, he lost his mum and how the last few days he brought her home and his wife or I think his girlfriend and him were taking care of her. And then after she passed away, they didn't shut down her credit card and then they kept using it. And he said, Ma, thanks, because you kept paying even after you weren't there. And I mean, I'm doing injustice to the, the delivery, but right. he just does it so well. And that the reason I mentioned that is because we spoke before we started recording about uh, without drawing a parallel, but kind of without even trying to say we had a shared experience, but loss uh, without in this sense, in my case, it was grief is another thing which we'll talk about. But this idea of loss with uh, when I talk about um, when I started talking about my um, visual impairment or how I lost my eyesight when I was a young kid on stage, the initial thing was first unbelievable. Uh, people were like, uh, not unbelievable from my end, but they, they didn't believe that I couldn't see, right? They thought it's a thing I'm doing to get pity. Or when they did start believing me, I had to like rush through the goods to the stuff I wanted to say to get like, oh, I went on a blind date, some silly stuff like that, right? Um, right. But when you do it amongst people with, uh, say you do it at a conference for disabled people, they all have yep. some sense of the shared story, right? Like someone's asked right. in a wheelchair, like, oh, would you like to take the step, steps of the lift? And so the, I think that you're able to drill deeper into the feelings that yes. you really want to share as opposed to like the top five jokes about blindness or because... Um, and why is that? When we, why are we so... Okay, I'm not taking away from the audience because you're right. Some people just want to come and have a few drinks. But talking about yeah. these things, everyone is going to go through loss at some point. Um, everyone is going to... I mean, the only thing that is assured in life is death, right? For everyone. Some of us will lose our lives, but someone will lose, lose a partner. But let's let's specifically talk about the idea of losing someone, right? It yes. is going to happen. Um, yep. And I'm not saying we can be prepared for it because it's going to hurt damn bad, irrespective of being prepared or not. But when um, you say you speak about the post-death instances, right, which are bureaucratic in nature, it could be. But I'm sure you have other things that you would like to talk about, right, not at the cost of um, making fun of your husband passing away, but of the feelings, right? Like sitting there and just unable to face life or uh, this this mortal fear of your own. Because a lot lot of times when when someone in my family has passed away, I'm just scared, oh shit, it's going to pass off and it's going to rub off on me. I'm going to go tomorrow. You know, there's this absolute fear of your own mortality. 
but why can't we talk and about And I do these talk things? about those things. I do talk right. about those things with my widowed tribe because it's yeah. so comfortable and they've felt that too. You know, I, I one of the things I talk about is exactly that, how, you know, when you become widowed, it's like you become contagious. You know, nobody yeah. wants to be around you because they think, oh, oh crap, that can happen to me too. My husband mm. might die if I stay around her, you know, and all yeah. of a sudden everybody's uninviting you to things. They don't want to be around you. It's very uncomfortable for people to, it's like you become this cloud of death, you know, like mm. when Pigpen walks by from Charlie Brown and he's got that cloud of dust behind him, you know, mm -hmm. we have the cloud of death behind us right? and nobody wants to be around. And so uh, I do talk about the feelings, the emotions, all the brutally honest stuff of mm. widowhood and of grief and death and loss. And those people in that audience don't run away from that. They laugh and they cry at the same time. And you know, for some of them, it's, you know, they'll come up to me after the show and they'll say, that's the first time I've laughed since my wife was diagnosed with cancer. That's the first time I've laughed since my husband died, you know, or I didn't think I could ever laugh again. And so it's a really incredible experience. Do you think, Kelly, we are conditioned in society why we constantly live fearing death, right? Many of us, because that's yeah. what we're trying to avoid at any cost. But in one sense, we we have these rituals to honor the dead, but yeah. I don't know what what the thought is. But do you do you feel in some sense, while all that is done, okay, we have you know a mourning period. We kind of do our due diligence when it comes to paying respects. But do you think that moment, the moment that time is over, we kind of are conditioned to disrespect death, uh, not disrespect death, but. Um, Dis disrespect the, the aftermath of death in some way. I don't know. If that's I do. A, mm, I, I totally get what you're asking. And I, I, yes, I think that as a society, we really stink at dealing with death and grief and loss as a society. We are horrible with, you know, we've been conditioned to think that those rituals, the funeral, the, you know, the, whatever you do after the death and in the immediate aftermath of the death, um, that, you know, you do that thing and then that's it. You move on after that. And that is so untrue. It is so unhealthy and it is so wrong on so many levels. And we make people think that there's something wrong with them because they want to continue to have a connection to the person they lost and they want to continue to love that person. It's different. It's a different form of love. Like my husband is that died is no longer my husband, but I'm connected to him forever. I was his wife. Now I'm his widow. That connects me to him forever. And, you know, he's still a part of my life in my mind. I've ha I have moved forward in my life. I'm remarried. It's 11 years later. I am remarried and I'm happy again. However, I still have sadness. I still have grief. I still miss him. I'll always miss him. And he's a part of my life. You know, I still talk to him, you know, in my head. And he's like, he's like my teammate now, you know, he's like a somebody that's on my side and he was he was just such a great person and he's part of what made me the person I am today so that I could love again so uh, that's mm. kind of how I see it is that it's all connected and if we take the losses that we have with us and bring them forward into our life forward it can actually help us to create a better life for ourselves and to use that love we had from that person to fuel more love but the way society yeah makes us having, you know, 
wanting to see it as, oh, let that go. That's part of your past. Move on from that as if we should be ashamed of loving yeah. some, somebody that died. And I think that's awful. And, you know, that that's what I was thinking, right? Because we are so bound by the material body and the material existence, existence of that person, the name or the the job they held or the role they had right. in our lives, right? Whether it's father, son, mother, wife, husband. Um, and it's almost like, oh, you didn't go for the funeral. You disrespected their memory. But I think that's so final, right? That you have 13 days yeah. in Indian custom or or the you have to go for the, the funeral and the, the burial and the wake or whatever the practices and whatever the faith. But this is what, this is what I think, right? Because... What you just said makes so much sense that we're so conditioned that when that body is no longer there, the the, the person's gone. But right. what if we're told, or rather, what if we believe in the idea that the person, firstly, even when, when they're alive, I mean, just because I live, say I live away from whoever it is for, I lived away from my parents for just five years doing university. Now, Technically, they're not physically with me, and the law, and they're not lost. But there's a sense I'll meet them for the holidays, right? But yep. if it's a, it's a similar kind of thing, uh, I feel because if we're kind of told that the the bond doesn't have to be physically holding the hand, look, of course, it's great to hold their partner, it's great to show love and share love in that way. But there are so many more deeper layers that continue to exist after the the, the, the physical is no more, right? Yes. Yes, there's so many more layers. And, you know, it's, it's, it's just one more way that we're all connected, right, that we are all going to go through loss. I mean, we're going to, if you love human beings, human beings die, and we're going to go through losses, all of us, whether it's, you know, brothers, sisters, parents, you know, uh, for best friends, uh, spouses, I mean, so many people in our lives, as we get older, are going to die. And we are going to die. And so, I think society is just so conditioned to not really talk about that. And, and, and like you said, they focus on the rituals of death. They focus on the funeral. They focus on the respect, respecting the dead and those kind of things. But what about respecting the people that are left behind? What about respecting that, you know, that widow that's left behind or, or that uh, son or daughter that's left behind when their parent dies or that parent that's left behind when they're, small child dies or their baby dies, things like that, that are just horrific to go through. And then you have friends and family turning their back on you and ignoring you after those funerals, because they don't know what to do. They don't know how to deal with you. And they've been conditioned to think I've done my duty. I went to the funeral. I said yeah. flowers. Now I'm done. I think and the world so needs to start right after the ritual. Like you need to start yeah. doing more I mean, give them some time off for like 15, 20 days after the death and then start going every calling every week because that's when the support is most needed, right? Yeah, just check in and, and just don't ignore the person and leave them feeling so alone because when you lose somebody like that, you already feel so isolated yeah. and so alone and so like nobody else could possibly know this pain. And you yeah. don't have to do anything big. You just have to be there and not um, abandon the person. Just be there. You know, but so many people don't do that. They really, because they don't know how. They they just want to fix it and want to mm. make it better. And you can't make it better. It's not possible. Something horrible has happened in this person's life. And they just need to go through it and process it. But have people there and knowing that people are there to just sit with them in their pain 
or to just stop by and, and, you know, bring some food over or take them out for lunch or, you know, things like that, but not, you know, a week after the person died, but continue doing it for years after months and years and keep asking how, how are you doing? How are you really doing? You know? <laughs> now, now I want to understand and, because the physical thing is very real, like not hearing the person's voice, not smelling them, not holding them, not, yeah. you know, but did you ever feel, and it's, this is something which I don't know if it's a point that is valid, but I feel you have this moment where the physical stops to hurt as much, not having that person wake up in the morning next to you. Of course, never going to stop hurting entirely, but it it almost like it it goes the 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 deeper connection starts taking more, taking over more, and that sort yeah. of helps soothe the physical pain. Is that valid? Yeah. Point? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And I think that that isn't so much a moment where that happens, at least it wasn't for me. It's kind of a lot of little moments where that mm. happens, that where that shift takes place over time and over doing the, the hard grief work. You know, I mean, myself, I had a grief counselor for about three years after the loss. Every Monday I saw a grief counselor. I did a lot of writing. I did a lot of comedy. Uh, you know, writing the book was very therapeutic. Meeting other widowed people was very therapeutic and still is. I have a lot of widowed friends in my life now. Um, and and just talking about it, talking about it to anyone who would listen, really. Um, and so, yeah, after some time of doing that, um, and continuing to live your life and find new things that, you know, that you want to do with your life. Cause the question becomes, okay, what do I do now? How do I live this life now without him, but also with him? Because mm. I want to live in a life where I can have him as still part of my life and still continue forward. It's not one or the other. Yeah. Um, you know, so it, it does become less about missing the physical person and, finding ways to uh, change the connection that you have with them. Um, so it took me a long time through grief counseling to, to kind of see my husband, Don, as not my husband, not a husband and wife relationship, but more of like a different connection. Like this is a different connection now. I can no longer be his wife, but I'm connected to him forever. And that like to feel that connection change took a lot of time. Um, but once that happened, I did feel more of a sense of peace and way more of a sense of, okay, I can live this way because he's not gone. He's gone physically. He's not my partner anymore, but he's not gone from my life. He'll never be gone from my life. And that made me feel like a, it was almost like a big sigh of relief. Like, Oh, okay. He's not, he's not really gone. Like, and if I, can find ways to keep him in my life um, and help other people through loss and, and help them know that they can do that too. And so their person won't be gone really. Um, it, it's so helpful. It's so helpful. And so if society could learn that somehow, you know, that's the message I'm always trying to, to, to spread because I just think it's so much easier to live with losses if we can do that. And if we're allowed to do that and not judged for it. You know, it's a remarkable sense of, I, I haven't been through what you have, so I, I, I don't want to put any 
words that sound patronizing but um it how is this experience losing someone so dear to you how has that changed your relationship to death uh, man you have good questions they're so deep <laughs> <laughs> i think my parents uh, put that in my name unintentionally <laughs> right <laughs> were you born that way were you just born a no. deep person that has all these questions in your head I I I, 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 yeah, I don't know um, if they're profound, but I just, I, I, I'm terrified of these things coming to reality, and I just want to know because yeah. I mean, why do we, you know, kind of speculate when it's? I think a person who's been through it and their experience is the most powerful, some one of the most powerful resources out there. So, sorry, I'm just asking you because you feel these things and you as opposed to you use words to hypothesize right you've actually been through right. this i want to get it from your life right because when you're so scared of this thing and we're all just trying to avoid thinking about death and we're working 100 yeah. hour shifts and next thing you know we are saved up all this money to to live healthily and we can't because we're unhealthy wrecks and we're stressed and yeah. we're anxious and but if from a young age if we can look at death as a thing which is inevitable and accept it um it might just make life a little easier to, and more enjoyable to live right so I, that's why i wanted to find out what your approach to looking at death is and rather how it's changed since that profound loss in your life yeah thank you that's that's a really really good concept and a good great question <clears throat> it's changed in a few ways um so death has always kind of terrified me you know from when the when i was a little kid it's just always been this looming thing that's terrified me and part of the reason it terrified me was because i didn't really have um uh the sense that something happens afterwards mm -hmm. i didn't really know <clears throat> and um i'm not really a religious person i'm more of a spiritual person Mm -hmm. So I didn't really believe in heaven, hell, that kind of thing. And so I just kind of was thinking, you know, does nothing happen after we die? Do we just go nowhere and we're just nothing? And the idea of that terrified me, like yeah. that you're here one day and then you're just gone. And so um, after Dawn's death, and again, this took some time. It wasn't like all of a sudden I felt this differently. Yeah. But it took a lot of talking through it and a lot of time and a lot of um, just kind of thinking about it and living my life differently. Um, once I started to feel that connection with him, with, you know, this person that is so dear to me that died suddenly and I and I could still feel him here with me in so many different ways, feel him cheering me on, feel him, you know, just in so many different ways. Um then I started to see death a little differently. Like, well, maybe there is something more when we die. Maybe it's not just nothing. Maybe you're not just, <clears throat> you know, absolutely nothing when you die, but maybe your soul lives on and maybe your spirit lives on through stories that people tell the people that are left behind through memories, through um, their actions and the ways that they honor you through the, the relationships they make because they met you, you know, and there's so many ways that everybody changes everybody else's life when they're here on earth, but they can continue to change and alter someone's life after their death, you know? And so 
Dawn has changed my life in so many ways and helped me learn so many things about life and death, um, both in his time here and now because mm. of his death, that um, it's really changed everything and in a good way. You know, I, I mean, I feel like I'm a, a much better person in so many ways because I knew him and because of his kindness, I kind of try and take some of my favorite traits of his and put them in my own life, you know, and be more like he was, he was a very patient person. So I try to be more patient. It doesn't always work, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I do try. Yeah. So I, I guess I'm less terrified now of death. I'm, I'm still, I still don't want to die. I mean, I'm kind of, you know, scared to go there and, and all that, but yeah. it's definitely changed in my mind <clears throat> because I think, well, maybe when I die, you know, hopefully I've left behind this message of hope that we're all connected and that, you know, when I die, please talk about me, you know, please don't be ashamed to talk about me and, and to, you know, reach out to my family, you know, and, and things like that. And hopefully I've made a difference in a, in a big way and in small ways. And I just think that it's so much less terrifying after you can sit with it for a little while and kind of make some sense of it. You know, just you know? the words you used now to um, represent what you want people to um, identify with your life. It's very humble because you didn't say I want them to celebrate me or honor me or, um, you know, set up something in my memory. But it was more the reality of it, like reach out to my family, um, you know, kind of. Um, yeah. respect some of the messages I put out there. And that is something that I think is so doable as opposed to build a huge statue in my honor, <laughs> you know? Right, and, right. But uh, <laughs> I, find, I find that very, very sort of, you know, humble and nice to hear because in, 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 in a society where everyone wants to be celebrated with either being called a a star or a celebrity or yeah. an icon or um, whatever the word in that field may be and everyone else aspiring to do that with the immense power of the internet um right. you, someone like you who's been through quite a life-changing uh, experience over the past 10 12 years um and as a result now you have you, you stand in a in, 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 in a i would say in a place many people um, who have experienced loss have not come to because of various reasons, because of denial, because of avoidance, because of maybe various things, which is sure. is their own journey or their own way of coping. Um, you're a grief counselor now. You help other people who go through this. Uh, what do you see uh, shaping out in our generation and the generations to come when it comes to grief or more importantly, facing adversity and the idea of resilience? Yeah, um, I see things getting better. It's very, it's been a slow movement in that direction, but I really feel like society is getting better at talking about grief, at talking about loss, at letting people speak about it. Um, there's a lot more shows on te on television about grief, about loss. There's a lot more movies made about widowed people and about people that lose a child or a parent or a sibling. Um, there's just more information. There's more websites. There's more organizations. There's more nonprofits. 
all these things. And there's the internet, you know, that didn't exist, you know, many decades ago. Yeah. Uh, there's so many more places of support. There's so many more better messages um, about death and loss. And there's just more of an open-mindedness about it. We still have a long way to go, but it's getting better. And that's what I see. Um, the messages are getting better um, that, that are coming out in, into society. So I think, I feel like the people coming into the next generations going forward are going to have a lot more tools to deal with and a lot more um, better skills when they're grieving and when they're going through loss and they'll feel a lot less alone, which is so important, important. and so great. It's encouraging, right? Yeah, it's in, it is encouraging because it's, you know, I mean, even just 11 years ago when I lost my husband, all of what's available today was not available then. And there was there was some available then, but there's so much more now, just even in the past like five years. Mm. I want to ask you one thing before we wind up for today. You're, um, you know, I'm so happy that you're remarried and your husband and you have a new life you're sharing but how yeah. is it for him? Because yeah. it can't, can't always be, uh, it's a twofold thing. One is to be there for you, of course, because you've been through this pretty yeah. incredible um, life-changing uh, experience of loss and grief. But now, I mean, I'm going to say this out the way, and sorry if it sounds a bit um, <laughs> um, inconsiderate, but... yeah. It's almost like uh, he has to take on this 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 role of your, um, I mean, I, of course, as your friend and your partner and your and the person you love. But there's this thing that I, I don't know his background. Sorry, but I'm just going to ask the question as you as an example, but not specifically maybe to you. But so when 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 someone is um, lost someone and they're getting remarried, um, it's almost like he has to. He definitely has helped you, right? Come to where you are. Um, with sure. this new um, way of looking at this 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 chapter in your life, but um, what is okay? I'm going all over the place, but I, I don't know that right. <laughs> For once, I don't have a good question, Kelly. I'm sorry, but it's more an idea of um, how does someone who is marrying a person who's widowed uh, approach the situation? Yeah, yeah. Um, wow. Well, I think first of all, it takes a certain type of person mm. to love a widowed person. I really do feel that way because okay. I did not start dating until five years after my husband's death. It took me that long to even be interested in dating to the idea of dating, to the concept of someone else. Um, I wasn't interested for the first five years. I just had too much to go through. And I, if you would have asked me then I would have said no way, no way in, in double H, you know, I don't know if you can swear on the show. But oh, of course. No, of course. I, yeah, I, <laughs> no way in hell that I'm going to be, you know, in love again with anybody else. Um, <clears throat> I would have never believed it. Yeah. But things change and, and they shift. And I got lonely, you know, around year five. I was like, ah, oh, this sucks. Am I going to have to be alone forever? I'm all, you know, I'm only in my 40s and I don't want I don't know what I want to do here. Mm. And so I started to go on the dating sites and all that stuff. And I met a lot of people that could not deal with the fact that I was a widow. Uh, they just couldn't handle it. They couldn't handle it emotionally. They couldn't handle it mentally. They felt like I should move on, 
you know, because uh, that's what society tells them. Yeah. And, they, you know, aren't you over this yet? And, you know, you, you talk about him a lot and then stuff like that. Um, yeah. And so there's a lot of people out there that cannot handle it. And it needs to be a specific type of person. Mm. Um, maybe somebody who has been through a lot of loss themselves. And so my husband, Nick, has been through a lot of loss himself. He lost both parents pretty young. Um, he lost a sibling pretty young. And so he's been through a lot of loss himself and he has always been very, very understanding of uh, me being widowed and my involvement in the widowed community. And I, I think he just gets it. He understands that it's a huge part of who I am and that, you know, the love Dawn and I shared is what brought me to him. You know, it's, yeah. it's part, if I wasn't who I became because of that loss and that love, I wouldn't be able to love him. So it's, he mm. sees it the same way I see it in a way that it's all kind of connected. Um, well, that's, a, that's a very unique way yeah. which very few people can respect someone for, right? Because there's an automatic right. sense of jealousy going, ah, come on, you're, you're giving more importance to someone who's not around. Like I'm here now, give me the love kind of thing. But what your husband is doing and is- I, but, but he sees it as more of, you know, he's dead. He says this all the time. He's like, he's dead. He's no threat to me. He's dead. He's not coming <laughs> back, you know? So- See, now that, that's funny in a very yeah. heartfelt way, but it, that would be perceived as offensive in today's uh, very sort of- uh, fluffy society, right? But that that makes so much right. sense because the bond you share is as a result of his losses and your losses and the experience that you've gone through to overcome, not overcome, but gone through to get to where you are. And that sure. is something which is so much more on a level that a person who would get offended by that line will never understand, right? Exactly, exactly. And, and that's exactly why that type of comedy it works so well with, you know, other widowed people, they crack up at that, you know, and there's this uh, conference that I, that I attend at, you know, one of the places I, I present at, it's called yeah. Camp Widow. And okay. uh, it's put on by, I know, and that's funny too, right? right. <laughs> Camp Widow, it sounds horrible. Right. But it's this amazing kind of like a retreat where you, where there's all kinds of presentations and, and, and courses and things about grief. And it's a three-day weekend in different parts of the country held a few times a year. And that's where I, I present. Um, and I do like a 90-minute comedic presentation about grief and loss there. And right. he comes with me because they welcome partners. Okay. So he comes with me once a year to Tampa, Florida to do this presentation and he's got up himself and told some jokes as my partner and the people there love it. They crack up because it's so real. It's so brutally honest. Mm. And a lot of people that are there that are widowed have also been repartnered. So mm. it's really an, um, an amazing thing when you can be that honest about it and about how weird it is and about, because it is weird. It's very strange to be a widowed person who's remarried, you know, and there's a lot of funny situations where I'm talking about my husband and, one of my widowed friends will say the dead one or the alive one, you know, it's like that kind of brutal humor that we have. Yeah. And it's dark, you know, it's like dark humor that I think you gain when you have been through something tragic, you know? And it sounds like, you know, there are these people in comedy, especially who want to be saying things because they call themselves dark humor, dark. Uh, yeah. They, I talk about dark material. And they do it without the experience, right? They'll unless right. They, they'll crack a rape joke or they'll crack some joke which they know is the set of things in today's society which will get the shock value. But it's yeah. so it's so unfunny because it's not 
an experience. It's not real. Uh, it's not real. And this, even though it may not be the punchiest joke, but it is funny because that person to, has the license to say it because they've come to yes. where they are after experience, experiencing what they have. Exactly. And that's why I want to extend that to, to say it. Yeah, and that's something which I feel we need more of as opposed to saying, you can't talk about rape and comedy. You can't talk about abuse. I feel if you've been through it, if you can talk, if you can go through life after something so horrific, something so life-changing, and you have the right to talk about it, no one should shut you up. But if someone's going Absolutely. and doing it because they want to stand out and say, you know what, I'm a commentator. And we have these pricks on in stand-up who are just waving this flag going, I stand for all... Um, people are <laughs> abused and everyone's like lauding them because he has the he has the balls to talk about I'm like, but it's such a bad job because then it's not real it's not funny right. and it's just what's the word they use now virtue signaling right which everyone's talking about but what you've been through and you said the ladies who are at this conference if you can go through it and you can shoulder that pain and you can wear that pain get to where you are in life and you have every right to talk about it you know what I mean yeah yeah, absolutely. And I feel totally the same way about comedy, especially. And, you know, I've done some some comedy teaching and, and instructing and things like that. And that's one of the number one things I have always told my students, even before I have went through this, this loss. I always told my students, you know, whenever you're writing a joke, ask yourself and it's and it seems like a controversial joke or topic or it's about race or it's about, you know, something like that where you feel like it's controversial ask yourself, why am I writing the joke? Don't ask yeah. yourself, is it offensive? But why do I want to say it? Yeah. Why do you want to say it? And tell me why you want to say it. And yeah. you know, if that's their reason, because it's shocking, well, then don't say it. That's yeah. not a good reason. You know, Stand if you it, actually have something to say. You. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, if it's true and honest, and you actually have something to say, and you actually feel this way, let's break that down and talk about that and find a way to make that fun. And most people can't. And most people who haven't got the experience, but who get the fame overnight, aren't able to stand by their jokes. They kind of right. have an apology ready, or they're like, "Oh, I'm cancelled." And I don't know. Right. I don't. I don't think it's heading to a good place for stand up because it's more of these people than people who are genuinely funny and genuinely talking about experiences that they want to share and they want to say shit that they want to say, as opposed to things yeah. that want to be heard and the right kind of thing. So. So the the woke people celebrate you or the conservative celebrate. I'm like, why can't it just a joke be a joke and stand by it, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and you have all these things that are so fast, fast and quick, like TikTok and all all this stuff now, where you, Instagram and TikTok, where you have to like get the joke done in like four seconds or fourteen seconds or yeah, and it's so that's the I, joke. I can't stand it. Yeah. <laughs> I can't, I just can't stand it. It's like, like it's, it's too little of a space and a time frame to, to get anything of value in there, you know? Absolutely. And I'm, I'm with you on really that. It's really hard. Yeah. That's why I love this because, you know, this format that you're doing because it's, it's more long form. And I love that. I love words. I love to talk. I love to break things down and, you know, and have a, a real conversation. And there's in so many ways, you know, not enough of that today. I love it too. I, I really uh, think, you know, that these things that we have spoken about, um, it it is stories, right? It is what humanity has passed on. It's not uh, yeah. to take away from the other developments we have, but the connection that goes beyond 
short form content is where I don't know you. I've never met you till an hour back, but these words we've shared is has gone beyond words, right? It's it's things that yeah. I would probably not talk to many people about who I know, right? Because the connection is not about. Um, you know, the, you, we, you and I happen to be in a similar space of work. But besides that, whatever has shaped your life, the experiences that have been in yours and mine are so different. But I feel this is what it means to be uh, one of the things that is so profoundly human, right? Finding the ability to talk to someone who's so different from you and then share ideas and thoughts and experiences and emotions that um, is what makes you human, I think. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And and the fact that, you know, you can just have a conversation like this when you don't know the person, but yeah. so quickly you can just have a natural, organic conversation. Yeah, I, I think it's, it's such a great thing. You know, it's such a great thing to to have those experiences. No, it's been absolutely um, a pleasure talking to you, Kelly. I think um, what you're doing to help other people uh, who've been through similar events in their life. But I think more importantly, and not um, saying this lightly, is changing yeah. the narrative around how a person who has died, who, is, who was so important to you, can actually be um, someone who can also lead you to a, to a place in your life which you might have never got to. Yes, absolutely. That's a great way to word it. And that's a great way to... to that's a great message to send because that's what it is. It's, it's, it doesn't negate the fact that it's still a, a tragic, horrible, awful loss and it's incredibly painful. However, it can also evolve you as a person and lead you to somewhere, like you said, that you may have never gone. Yeah, no, it's, you know, horrible it's, it's things a, change us. They yeah. change us as people. And I think that eventually it's up to us how it changes you, you know, something, something as deep as a, as a loss, how does it change you? That's up to you. It's not up to us. You know, when someone dies, you know, we can't control that, but we can control how it changes us. Is it going to make us a bitter, angry person? Is it going to evolve us into something where we can help other people or where we can, um, you know, change the trajectory of our life in some way and carry that person with us? No, that's amazing. It's a lot more, um, it's, I'm sure it's easier for me to say it with words, but you've actually done what you've said you've done, which is yeah. so much more. And I salute you for that. And, you know, cheers to Don's memory. Cheers to you and Thank you. cheers to Nick. And Thank you. He'll appreciate that when he listens to this. <laughs> yeah, no, it's great. Uh, it's been a lovely um, uh, time chatting with you. And I hope... Um, we can share a stage sometime, you know. Um, that would be amazing. Yeah, it'll be maybe fun. Maybe a Zoom show since we're so far away. <laughs> yeah, maybe a Zoom show. Maybe, I don't know. Maybe my my wife and I, we might visit New York or the, the U.S. Who oh, knows? nice. I mean, I, I have no clue what our plans are, but. Um, well, if you do, please let me know. I'd love to, I'd love to meet you in person. That'd be great. Yeah, that would be lovely. No, I think uh, that should happen in the near future. And uh Good luck with everything and with your new material and with uh, whatever you. projects you're working on. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And this was a blast. And much like life, it went by way too fast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I think we should do this again. I think we should keep chatting That'd once be great. in a while. Yeah.
Lovely. I, um, yeah, take care, Kelly. I appreciate it. You too. Hey, thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you like what you heard, please do check out the other episodes on YouTube or wherever you get your podcast. And I would much appreciate it if you could like the video, share it with people who you think might enjoy it. And of course, do subscribe to the channel because it will help me and the podcast grow and reach more people just like you. So thanks again. Appreciate it.